This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. The big story is uh, Hurricane Irma, which uh, uh, wrecked some havoc across the Caribbean. We told you yesterday that, that this was a monster storm. It has killed at least eight people, injured 23 in the Caribbean as it continues to roar overhead. Antigua uh, and uh, a number of different places like this. Joining us to talk about what has happened and uh, what we can expect over the next three or four days is Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist, of course, at Global News. Anthony, good morning, and thanks so much for taking the time with us today. Oh, no problem. Good morning to you. You've been tracking these things for a long time, and, and there have been some huge ones. We, we talked about Sandy and some of the other ones like this, but Irma is, uh, is a, uh, this, this is a, a megastorm, isn't it, Anthony? It really is, especially in this part of the Atlantic. You sometimes get pressures this low and wind speeds this high in the Caribbean or maybe in the Gulf of Mexico where there's all that warm water and fuel. But the fact that this is uh, heading a little bit further north and uh, not impacting some of these big islands like Cuba and Hispaniola and Puerto Rico, that is good news, of course, for those areas, but it's very bad news because there's nothing to disrupt this hurricane as it eventually moves towards uh, Florida this weekend. Is it picking up steam, Anthony? Well, what we're seeing today, and I do expect some weakening, and uh, hopefully people don't let their guard down when they see those wind speeds start to drop. It's already down 10 kilometers an hour from last night, and now it's passing just north of uh, the Dominican Republic. There's some big mountains uh, in the Dominican Republic and Haiti as well, up to 10,000 feet. So the winds, what they do, they downslope off that mountain, and that dries the air out a bit, and it tends to disrupt the circulation of these hurricanes. Ideally, a hurricane, for it to be a Cat 5, it needs to be in the open Atlantic. When it's close to an island, island like this, you may see some weakening, but it's just temporary. It may help the Turks and Caicos a little bit, but as it moves towards the Bahamas, there's just so much warm water uh, in the way and uh, just perfect conditions aloft that I, I don't see uh, any reason why this won't be a, a massive storm by the time it uh, reaches potentially Florida. We've seen hurricanes, Anthony. How did this one get this big so soon? I mean, we knew a couple, few days ago that it was forming. Uh, just as we were talking about Harvey, of course, and the and the devastation that it was wrecking across Texas and the Louisiana coast eventually, but but this one was on the horizon, obviously, uh, and and I saw one picture yesterday that suggested that the land, the storm itself, was almost as big as the country of France. I mean, this this almost sounds like the perfect storm, like the perfect hurricane. Yeah, and it, it is definitely uh, growing. And one thing, when the wind field uh, starts to expand, you get a bit concerned because uh, the center, the 280 kilometer per hour winds, only encompass about 25 to 50 kilometers. And when that wind field starts to expand, it just increases the amount of damage over a larger area. So that's what we're worried about. But really, when you talk about these hurricanes, and Harvey was another example, you, you look at patterns around the entire globe. And this year, we don't really have an El Nino or a Nina in the Pacific, and that can sometimes add shear to the Atlantic side of things. So you look at the global pattern, and then you look at these oscillations, and some of them are two- to three-week oscillations, and that's what we're in right now. And we saw this back in 2005 when there were just a ton of storms all at once. Right now we have three hurricanes, by the way, in the Atlantic all at once for the first time since 2010. So you get the pattern that's ripe for development. There's a nice area of high pressure uh, over the Bahamas and uh, back to Bermuda. And underneath, you just get perfect conditions for storms. And that's why we have so many that are forming all at once, and they're able to intensify so quickly. And, of course, the water is also very warm, above normal water temperatures, stretching along the entire length of where Irma formed and, and now where it's headed. 
how in a situation like this do you try to predict where this is going to go? I mean, we're used up here in, in southern Ontario, Anthony, to to the weather weather patterns that you talk about. You know, mostly it's kind of a west to east flow uh, with weather systems, highs, lows, and things of that nature, and and that's how we figure. Okay, that's 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 what's going to impact our weather. Uh, this this is a rogue meteorological event. I mean, that, does it know where it's going, or and and what could change it? <laughs> Well, there there are a lot of factors that can change it, and one thing that uh, we're very thankful for, and I guess we take for granted a little bit, is that we were talking about Irma the middle of last week in a potential landfall in Florida or maybe the Carolinas. So it's incredible that nine days ahead of time we're still uh, able to we're now able to predict where this may go. Of course, there is some uncertainty, and the models still have not pinpoint uh, pinned down an exact landfall, whether it be Miami or or if it misses, it could actually only make landfall up in the Carolinas. So there's still a lot of uncertainty, but models have definitely become a lot better. And what happens here across the Great Lakes, amazingly, can actually influence some of these beasts of tropical storms down in the in the tropics. Really? Because you end up with these, these troughs, and it's been a bit cool. It was a chilly morning this morning, and uh, will be again tomorrow. So this trough that we have here is actually going to cause this weakness in the big ridge that's sitting over the southeast, and that's actually going to help steer this weekend the storm north. The big question is, of course, timing, when that turn happens, and that makes all the difference. When they do make landfall, and, and there's still some concern, obviously, about Florida. We talked yesterday about they canceled the football game for Sunday, of course, in Miami. Uh, and they're taking Smart precautions. Move, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. We wouldn't want 80,000 people in that stadium when that thing hits. Uh, so they, And they're going to play that later on in the season. So that's, that's fine. And there's uh, being, I, I guess, mandatory evacuations like that. But we're not even sure that it's necessarily going to hit the Miami area. Uh, sometimes these things kind of scoot out to sea again. How, how soon or how much notice will they have whether or not this is actually going to happen there? Well, this is, uh, I guess, in a way similar to Houston. You, you kind of wonder, okay, do we evacuate millions of people? Does that make sense? Are they going to get stuck on the highways? Where do they go? If you're evacuating people from Miami, do they head north? And what if this storm ends up coming in further north? So there, there's obviously a lot of thought, and that's beyond uh, my meteorological skills to, to do that type of uh, uh, assessment. But well, you what, need to be Kresgen are... to do that, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. What they are doing, though, and there's still, again, two about two days before the tropical storm force winds start arriving uh, on the beaches of Florida. So they're evacuating first those coastal communities because this system, the fact that it is so big and has had winds this strong for so long, there's an immense amount of water that's going to pile up. And even if this doesn't make a direct landfall near Miami, some of these storm surge models have 10 to 20 foot surges and that can take out a, a lot of, uh, well, South Beach and then all the way up Miami-Dade County and, and up the coast. So that, that's something that definitely you have to evacuate ahead of time. And then the big question is, okay, do we do that next level of evacuations where, where this is uh, more people that are having to leave at the last minute? I, I feel so badly for these folks right now because, like you say, if you make that decision, like around Dade County, as you've already talked about, where do you go? Because uh, there's still a possibility this thing could bounce off and go up to the Carolinas. So, I mean, just how far north can you go to get away from this thing? Yeah, and I guess you move to Canada. That's what you do. You can, uh, you can uh, save a bit of heartache, but uh, it's been uh, it's it's really a tough situation. And it's also if you pull out a map and look at uh, Florida and how it kind of sticks out a bit like a sore thumb, you would expect them to get hit by by hurricanes. But because this is going to parallel the coast. 
there's a potential, and it's actually the official National Hurricane Center forecast right now is a worst-case scenario where you have this storm that just hugs the coast all the way up. Of course, there's been a big buildup of property of houses uh, right along those beachfront communities, and uh, it would just rake that entire coastline. And because it is so near those warm waters, the Gulf Stream, it wouldn't weaken as rapidly as if it would come inland more. So hopefully not the worst-case scenario. We're first focusing on the Turks and Caicos Islands. I know a lot of Canadians uh, have been there or maybe have property there, and it looks like a bad news situation that late today as that eye closes in. How far north can a storm of this magnitude go? I mean, you know, because we always, in the back of our mind, Anthony, I think we think of Sandy and thought, well, boy, that, and it wasn't as big as this one, but it, it sort of replenished itself and made its way all the way up. I mean, usually these things blow out. We may see some remnants here, like some heavy rainfall for a few days, I guess, as they, they start to peter out. But this one's packing quite a punch right now. Just how much of a punch will it maintain as it starts heading north? Yeah, well, luckily there's there's no big fronts or system that's going to come in and merge. And that's what happened with Sandy. Sandy, as it was hitting the coast right around, uh, well, New Jersey and New York City, it, it transitioned. It turned into this big cyclone that was able to maintain its energy because it wasn't relying on the tropical uh, water anymore. It was able to just use other processes. So this one, because it is further south, because there's just a nice high pressure area to the north, you're not going to see much interaction with the front, and you're not going to see the same flooding rains. It is going to keep moving up to the north. We may get a shower here next Wednesday, maybe some heavier rain, but this is really a southeastern United States storm, and, and it will be petering out rather quickly. As bad as Harvey was, I mean, it, it, it blew and it caused its damage, but then the rains came. And it, as you reported on Global, Anthony, I mean, it, it sat there for a number of days and just drenched that, that whole area right now. Uh, can we expect, or is there an expectation that this might happen with Irma too, or is it quick moving? It is It is a quick mover, and uh, it looks like Florida may see as much as 10 to maybe 14 inches of rain. That's a lot. That's going to cause some flooding, especially the ground there is a bit saturated, especially northern Florida and towards Georgia. So there is going to be flooding, but this is going to keep moving. So it's more, in that sense, your, your typical hurricane where it, it, it does keep uh, moving and eventually catches up to the, the jet stream, and that'll whisk it off in about uh, five or six days. Of course, we're we're worried about the flooding rains, and of course, we're worried about the fact that Texas may get forgotten in all this, because there is still some flooding around the Houston area, uh, which is going to be a huge rebuilding process, and some of the estimates are $100 billion to $200 billion storm, so it's it's uh, it's going to be an interesting few days as as Florida braces for this. And that's about, as you said, if it's 10 to 12 inches or 13 or whatever, that's about a half or maybe even a third of what they had in, in the Houston area with almost 35 inches, I guess, in some situations there. That was an ugly mess. So this, they expect, if it's going to hit Florida, they're talking about, as you said, Sunday maybe for landfall there. Uh, and the impact, I guess, we'll have to wait and see, depending on how much it takes. But let me let me look a little bit into the future, then, if I can. You mentioned there's two other hurricanes out there right now. There's Jose and Katya that are forming out there right now. Uh, is Florida going to get a one-two punch here? What's going to happen with those two storms? Well, that's uh, yeah. I guess that's a big question. And Katya is definitely not going to impact the U.S. It's stalled right now in uh, the Gulf of Mexico, heading towards eventually the uh, Bay of Campeche, and then maybe around Veracruz, making landfall. So they're going to see some flooding, some big winds. But I'm not too concerned about Katya. Jose is is another story. It right now is taking a similar track to Irma, 
and some computer models uh, have now converged on a track that takes it right over some of those same islands, Barbuda, um, the British Virgin Islands, some of these areas that were just devastated yesterday by, by Irma now could have a Category 2 or 3 Jose come over them. So that would be obviously horrible news. And then the steering currents, the pattern just basically become stagnant, so Jose could still be on the weather map out in the Atlantic in about eight or nine days. There are still those, amazingly enough, that, that are poo-hooing this whole thing. I know Rush Limbaugh on his radio show yesterday said that, uh, that guys like you, Anthony, were actually overstating all this just to scare people, try to make the case for climate change. And I want to ask you to get into the politics of it, but clearly things have changed, and clearly things are, are more dramatic right now. Is, is this a more severe hurricane season than we're used to? It just seems as if they're just rolling in one after another now. Yeah, it's definitely more severe than, than we're used to. And, of course, uh, people's memory, they, they don't really <laughs> – it's been about 12 years, but they don't really remember uh, Katrina and, and what other storms were part of that year. It was just an incredible year. It broke records all over the place. And then since then, there's been this this gap. There's Basically, the U.S. Has, has been saved by these storms veering out to sea. Canada, as well, has been, been spared several times. So it's, it's one of those things where if you, you flip a coin a certain amount of times, eventually you're going to get heads, and, and you can kind of play the odds. But uh, Florida has, has escaped hurricanes for the last decade, which is just unheard of as far as history goes. So it's, it's no surprise that when the bad years come, they get one, two, three punches all in, in a row, and we'll see how, uh, how, of course, how stretched the resources are in, in the U.S., well, Anthony, listen, we'll be watching, uh, of course, on Global News at 5.30 and, of course, 6 in the national forecast later on as you give us updates through the course of the day. Busy time for you. Thanks so much for uh, spending some of it with us today. Appreciate it. All right. Thanks for having me on. Take care. Anthony Farnell, of course, Chief Meteorologist with Global News. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Yesterday, the Bank of Canada raised the interest rate to 1%. Uh, that's the second rise uh, in the last couple of months, as a matter of fact. Uh, which is going to have an impact, obviously, on the real estate market. It's going to have an impact on a lot of stuff. But uh, in hand with that was a report we got yesterday from the Hamilton Burlington uh, Real Estate Association about uh, prices. Now, uh, Lou Pirano is going to join us. He's right here in studio, as a matter of fact. He is the president of the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington. Thanks for coming in, by the way. It's great to see you here. No, wonderful to be here, Bill. Uh, there's a few things I want to get into here, and I, the interest rate hike is, is obviously something that's going to interest us here and have an impact on what's going on with housing. And and as we've said in past conversations, uh, house sales are always one of the barometers for how well your economy is doing. And I, I've got some serious concerns about what's been going on in the last little while. Now, I, we can talk a few minutes about some of the stats in this latest report because that is relevant. But I also want to talk about a theme that you've developed with our, our conversations over the last couple of months. Uh, and that's the way that governments have stuck their nose in here to try to impact what's going on in the market. And it's, I think it's having some serious implications. So let's, before we get into that, talk a little bit about the new stats. Uh, you know, they, they say house prices in Hamilton Burlington were up 14%, but it looks to me from the numbers I've seen here, Lou, that uh, that's great that the prices are up, but nobody's buying. Uh, well, that, that would be a, a bit of a miscalculation to say that nobody's buying. Uh, in fact, um, what we're finding is it's still a seller's market. It's, uh, we have a 65% sales to listings ratio, meaning 65 out of 100 houses are selling. Uh, anywhere between 60 and 100, we consider to be a seller's market. Between 40 and 60% is balanced, and under 40% we consider to be a buyer's market. So what we are finding is that the stuff that isn't selling is going to be out there a long time. 
and the stuff that is selling is basically selling at about the same pace as it was a few months ago. If it's priced right, it's uh, it's usually about a two-week drill. But prices have gone down. Well, average prices have come down. I mean, in this year. I mean, I know they compare it year to year, but that really, that, that's kind of an apples to oranges comparison. But but if, if you wanted to sell your house in February and you didn't and you decide to list it now, you're not going to get what you were going to get for it in February. Well, I don't have any empirical proof of that, Bill. Uh, you know, we know that there there was a, a bit of a, uh, you know, a competition situation back then that we don't have now. However, uh, in terms of average price, you've got to be very careful because there are fewer higher price properties selling, which brings the average down. And uh, so I, I prefer to talk about maybe median prices or, like you just said, take one particular house and say, what would that sell for again today? And I, I don't think there's a lot of difference, to be honest with you. So, so uh, give, me, give me your read on, on the relative health of the market here in Hamilton and Burlington then. Yeah, it, it's fantastic. I mean, you, you know, we're well positioned. We've got one month of slower sales in August, which is really irrelevant because we're coming off high record sales. So you're talking about record minus some. And we're happy with that. The, uh, the, as far as the 10-year average is concerned, we're about where we were on the 10-year average. So it's not a uh, recession or a depression or anything uh, of that nature. With something like an interest rate hike, though, and, and the banks have already responded as we might have expected, Lou. I mean, you know, the interest rates have gone up on mortgages right now, uh, on lines of credit, things of that nature. What, if any, impact does that have on, on what happens with real estate sales? I mean, do, when, when the people know that interest rates are going up, does that, does that scare them to say, I better buy now? Because the bank account governor, Mr. Paulus, has already said there's going to be more hikes coming up in the next couple of months. Well, it certainly does. And you have uh, people who have been pre-approved for mortgages at uh, previous rates. So they're going to be out uh, trying to uh, get those used up. Um, but, you know, as a small example, a $400,000 mortgage uh, is now, in, uh, you know, will buy you maybe uh, $300,000, whereas a couple of months ago, it would buy you uh, $331,000 when the rates were uh, almost three quarters of a point lower. So th- that much of a marked difference, which I guess for somebody who's in the market right now could have an impact on what kind of house or where they do- want to buy or where they're going to buy anyway. And, and there can be an inverse relationship between interest rates and house prices. So if uh, interest rates go up, it is possible that prices do come down. But but talk to us about the math, okay? Because, uh, you know, they say, well, that's that's really going to spur that. It's going to support. But if, if, you're, if you're paying a higher interest rate, Maybe you're paying a lower price for the house that you just purchased, but if you're paying a high interest rate, there's no gain there for the consumer, is there? Well, particularly first-time buyers, uh, Bill. This is the war on first-time buyers that we're seeing out here. CMHC, uh, where you have 20% down or less and you need mortgage insurance, has raised their premiums four times in the last two years. And the last one meant that if I'm a guy with 5% down trying to get into a property, they're going to charge me 4% on top of what I'm borrowing. So a $400,000 mortgage will attract a $16,000 insurance premium. You calculate what that costs over 25 years if you happen to stay in that property and it's uh, prohibitive. Then they're gonna also make me qualify as though the rate was almost twice that much. They're gonna make me qualify at the bank rate, uh, whatever the mortgage rate I can get, say three and a quarter, plus 2%. So I have to qualify at 5.25%. And that means that I'm going to probably shave off fifty to $75,000 over what I can now qualify for. So it's war on first-time buyers. And if it's successful and they do bring the prices down, it turns into a war on seniors who are counting on the price of their properties to be their retirement fund. Okay, so the government has to start getting their thumb off the scale of the market. Why are they doing it, though? 
Well, it's always perception. It's always they're, they're fixing problems that don't exist. Uh, you you know that uh, they claim that it's all about risk to the financial system, as though the banks aren't capable of figuring out that their money may or may not be at risk. So it's like me replacing my carburetor when I don't have to, just just in case something happens down the road. That's exactly the reason they're giving, just in case. Well, I, and I know they always cite the example of what happened with the crash in the States uh, back in 2009 with uh, with the Fannie Mae, et cetera. But, but we don't have that kind of system up here. And, and it, it's almost as if the government's saying, well, we don't think the banks can control themselves. The banks are doing fine very much. Well, thanks very much for controlling this thing. I mean, I don't hear of anybody who's defaulting on these things. A bank, if they think there's a risk, they simply say no. And, and they're saying it a lot more than they used to four or five years ago. So the default rate, which is defined as 90 days in arrears on mortgages, is now less than one-third of one percent. And that is not a situation where people are losing their houses. That just means they're behind on their payments and, and they may catch up. Uh, Genworth, who is like CMHC, a private insurer of mortgages, uh, says that their, uh, their business is way down and their profits are way up. Well, guess why? They have inc- they've increased the premiums in lockstep with CMHC and their losses are minuscule, like something like went down from a factor of 17 to a factor of three. But CMHC and, and the Bank of Canada, and I'm not suggesting they're colluding here, but I mean, they're, they're, they're working separate and apart. I get that. But, Lou, it seems to me as if, as if they're trying to, to fix a problem here that doesn't exist in the Canadian market. Absolutely. The, as you remember, in the United States, uh, there were what they called liar's loans. You basically had no qualifying income. It just uh, You had a pulse, uh, here's your mortgage, and so on. We've never had that here. It's always been stringent, and it's getting more stringent to the point where, uh, and it's a bit scary, uh, some of the lenders now, uh, if you bought a property two months ago and it appraised fine, they will reappraise it just before closing. And if it doesn't fit, you don't have a mortgage. You're kidding. I, I so wish you, I were. You think you've got a deal, and then the appraiser comes in and says, ah, sorry, prices have changed. Uh, you're, you're no longer in the running here. I have heard of some lenders doing that, yeah. And, and so, you, you know, our, our appraisal's lower. You need to come up with another $20,000. And the bank has the right to do that because they say if any circumstances change, including your income, uh, they can pull that mortgage. These... <laughs> These are stories that we don't hear. I mean, you know, we, we've heard some stories that, you know, when things are going crazy there and there were bidding wars, that there are some buyers that have walked away from deals that said, well, you know what, the prices are going down, so we really don't want to get into this. But we don't hear these stories about the institutions themselves putting the squeeze on. Well, you know, they're, I guess they're I know protecting you their asset. <laughs> you, uh, well, I mean, you hear them, obviously. You see another agent's hear this. I mean, because, I mean, you walk in there, and you, I, I guess you've got to be careful now about setting a closing date because you're afraid of what market calculations may have to change as a result of that. That's a great point, Bill. I mean, if I were buying, I, I think I would try to get a 30- or 60-day closing date instead of 120. Uh, however, having said that, I also do think that prices – are, are firming up. Uh, we, we are seeing some multiple offers again. Uh, we've gone through the summer and August where it's, it's quiet anyway, but um, uh, the, d- the demand is still there. No matter what the government does, there's more people out there that need property and, and houses to live in than there is uh, supply. But it, it must, you've been doing this for a long time, it must drive you crazy when governments step in and say, this is what we're going to do now. 
whether it was the provincial government, of course, with this foreign buyer tax surcharge and, and now new mortgage restrictions that, uh, that the government's imposing in situations like this. It's, it's them trying to affect a free market. And, and I, I guess what I'm asking here, Lou, is I don't see evidence that the market was out of control. I mean, it got a little wacky there with prices, but that's, that's what we call a free market. I mean, it ebbs and flows. And it was, it, was, it was certainly flowing and flowing very well then. But I don't know that there were too many people that were saying, well, I can't afford to get into the housing business right now because of that, or I can't buy a house. And anybody who was in that position six months ago is probably worse off now because of the government regulations. Sure. As, as I said, you know, a couple of years ago, you ha- you could get a 40-year amortization, which meant it keeps your payments low. You have young professionals out there that are starting out, and they can't afford it right now, but they will be able to afford it in a couple of years. And if they hadn't had that opportunity, they would have missed out on the market. So, you know, like I said, get out of the way. Get out of the way of the free market. It was already slowing down. I know there was a publicity in, in Toronto about house prices in April and May and how much they increased year over year. But everybody who, who could, could think about it knew that you cannot sustain a 30 and a 40% increase year over year. It was already backing down. And, you know, uh, I think we've said this before. You know what Ronald Reagan said? Knock on the door. You don't want to hear the guy on the other guy, uh, side saying, hi, I'm from the government and I'm here to help you. Because that doesn't happen. So what's going to happen with the market now? I mean, the numbers here, as you say, still look pretty good. But now we've got the government with this uh, program, and you've got the Bank of Canada with an increase in rates. Uh, there are people that we know, and an awful lot of them, we're told statistically about 35% of the people in this country right now live paycheck to paycheck. Well, they're budgeting, Lou, and they're saying, you know what, we can handle this mortgage, we can handle all this other stuff, and then all of a sudden you've got an interest rate hike like this, and all of a sudden that increases their monthly bills, their income's not going up. I can't go to your boss in the morning and say, hey, listen, my, my line of credit just went up 10%. Can you give me a 10% raise? That's not going to happen. So you're going to get people right now, they're going to have to question whether or not they can stay in the housing market. And God forbid they decide to want to go to rentals as a result because that's starting to shrink now too. As we talked, uh, the city of Hamilton and its wisdom is uh, thinking about putting in landlord licensing again, which we fought against five years ago, and they quietly brought it back over the summer. And what it means is that because the wind government says you can't raise your uh, rents more than 2%, how can you as a landlord afford to keep your property up and make it better for the tenants that are in there? Uh, so I know tenants think it's a protection. It is, in fact, exactly the opposite of a protection. And uh, so it's an interesting conundrum because if I can't afford to buy a house and I can't afford to rent a house or what I can rent is, is garbage, uh, where does that leave me? It's in a pretty poor spot. So again, uh, if we had uh, unlimited rentals, uh, you know, charge whatever you want. I know people think that rents would go through the roof. The, the opposite would happen. More rental units would be created. Competition t- uh, kicks in. Maybe not overnight, but it would happen. But but I heard from some people that are in that business, and, and I, I know a lot of people that did that as a while as an investment. Said, okay, I'm going to buy a property. I'm going to I'm going to convert it to rental properties. And it's not all student housing. I mean, I, there are grown up working adults that live in some of these facilities as well. But if you start imposing government sanctions on that, and then you start putting standards on there, I, I've talked to some landlords that are going to say, you know what, I'm going to sell it. I, I can't do that. I, I can't pay the capital costs for the improvements they want me to do because the mortgage rates and the interest rates just went up. So I, I, I can't borrow the money. So I'm going to walk away, or I'm going to convert it back to single family and sell it. And, and all of a sudden, then, the, what happens to the people that are living in that, uh, that unit? Rental housing dries up, and we, we made that case to the city five years ago. We made it effectively. It just seems to have uh, you know been forgotten uh, since then. And when you mentioned the word standards just now, uh, there are already standards. Sure there are. And uh, all, with, all they need to do is enforce them. 
Sure there are. And we found that five years ago. I mean, we talked to people on both sides of that issue five years ago. And, and you know, every time somebody said, well, this isn't done and the walls aren't painted and the, the wiring's not done, well, then come down on the people that are abusing it and not doing it. That's that's fine. That's what their job. That's what bylaws supposed to do. But by simply saying, okay, we're going to make it more onerous now for people that are landlords, you're actually going to reduce the housing stock. And it's, it's pretty difficult now for them to say, okay, well, I can go buy a place instead of renting. The government's just made it more difficult to do that now. Exactly, and and I hope folks out there know that we realtors are, are not just uh, out there uh, putting deals together for folks uh, on a daily basis. We're lobbying the government all the time. We spend an incredible amount of resources. Uh, they ship me all over the place to Ottawa, Toronto, talk to MPs, talk to MPPs, as well as uh, our other directors and committees we have. So we're working hard. Uh, people don't even realize that property rights are not entrenched in our Constitution as the way they are in the United States. So we've, we've got a long way to go here. We're fighting hard for it, and we need your help. Okay, We need you to talk to your MPs uh, about these things. Here's, here's the question, though, Lou. I mean, because here we are t- today talking about a Bank of Canada hike, and that's important. And we're talking about the housing prices over the last 30 days here in Hamilton, Burlington. And for people that are either buying or selling, that's important as well. But, but I think the message you're giving us here is, that, listen, uh, keep your eye on the ball here. The bigger picture here is that the government's trying to influence a market here. Uh, which is going to have an impact on probably the biggest, uh, largest purchase, most expensive purchase you're going to make in your lifetime right now. And and to many of us that want to get into that or stay in that market, uh, the government's making it more difficult. Yeah, you know, as far as the biggest expense is concerned, it's taxes at 42%. Shelter is something like 24%. So, uh, you know, the, the government is already uh, not helping you very, very much in terms of your disposable income. Um, but, you know, in Vancouver, uh, the, the, uh, they imposed the 15% buyer's tax on for foreign buyers, and the prices now are actually higher than they were uh, when they imposed that tax and it had taken its effect. So the market will rebound. It will find its own way back. But, you know, it, it just means that people are going to be struggling harder to, to make those ends meet. Who's going to benefit? Higher interest rates, the depositors, the lenders, they'll benefit, but uh, you and I won't. But you know what's going to happen. You've been in the business a long, long time, and you know the, when the other shoe drops, government's going to stand up and wake up and say, oh, my gosh, look what's going on with the market now. It's starting to stall. It's starting to stagnate. People aren't buying. People aren't spending money. And they're going to have to step in and throw incentives in, which, which is going full circle to exactly what they've done now. In other words, undo what they're doing right now. Yeah, I wish that was the case, but unfortunately they don't react till much, much later. No, until they're in crisis mode. And, and in, uh, I think it's Nova Scotia, they, they've actually got a program where they're lending money to first-time buyers, lending them a down payment. We could do that in Ontario. That would help. Well, if they'd listen to people that have been doing this for 30, 35 years, like yourself and others in this business right now, that can say, look, we've seen the way that things happen right now. now and I'm not suggesting, by the way, that this you know, cavalier libertarian approach to say, just let people do what they want whenever they want and everything will be fine. We understand there have to be regulations, but there already are. There, there's, yeah, I, I don't understand the risk thing uh, when you have defaults at record lows, when you, uh, when you have uh, uh, the banks who are quite capable of looking after the, their own money, you know, on uninsured mortgages. I could understand this on the insured mortgages where they said, look, it, we're CMHC, we, we represent the people, we're insuring these mortgages, we think there might be a risk down the road, we're going to increase our premiums. But why are you doing it uh, in cases where they have 20% down or more, which is totally the risk of the lender, of the bank or the trust company or whatever? 
So why are you inserting yourself there saying, I want those guys to qualify at 5%? And I know there's some folks out there that think it's good, that the nanny state is good. Tell us what to do and we'll do it. Uh, but I, I don't think it's beneficial in the long run. Is there any indication, any, any, any evidence anywhere that, there, that banks are in peril? I mean, like they were in the States back in 2007? Absolutely none. And I, I do have contacts at the bank who just shake their heads. Uh, they were promised consultation on this. Uh, to my knowledge, there hasn't been any. And uh, there wasn't the last time that the government uh, just imposed. Well, uh, it's, it's a very frustrating circumstance right now. And I know that uh, you know, I'm just looking at some of the tweets we're getting here as you and I are talking. And people are, are getting pretty upset about this. And, and I'll just finish this off by the, with the advice that you just said. Talk to your, your city councillor, talk to your mem- MPP and your MP, because they've all got their thumb on the scale right now. And most importantly, talk to, to a local realtor here. And I, I stress the local part, because uh, there, we've, we've seen now up to 35% of our, our business in the area coming from out-of-town brokers who maybe aren't familiar with the area. So talk to somebody. You know, all realtors are created equal, but they don't stay equal. Okay, some of them, some of them get more expertise in areas and more training and so on. So pick somebody that that serves your purpose and your need in your, in your area. And uh, the Realtors Association of Hamilton Burlington just look one of our members up. You bet, Lou Periano, of course, who is the uh, the president of the association. Thanks as always. Great talking with oh, you again. It's been great. You're listening to the Bill Kelly Show weekdays from nine to noon on AM nine hundred CHML. Well, let's talk Commonwealth Games. I know the. Uh, the problems with the Pan Am game still fresh in a lot of people's minds. Uh, Toronto 2015, as it turned out, uh, Hamilton did have a part in that. But but I don't want to get too deeply into the history here. But here's the reality. The Commonwealth Games uh, were originated in Hamilton. The first ever Commonwealth Games back in 1930. They were called the, the British Empire Games back in those days. Uh, and Hamilton was the host. And, and they built a new stadium for it. Uh, and it's, well, it was called Civic Stadium, right, we're on the side of where Tim Hortons Field is now. They built a new pool for it, the Jimmy Thompson Pool, which is still there. That was built for the British Empire Games way back when. Anyway, here's the gist. Uh, obviously in 1930. So 2030 is the 100th anniversary. The committee and a few folks around the city here have suggested, hey, we should host the 100th anniversary of the Games. Just like, you know, Athens hosted the uh, the anniversary of the uh, the uh, Summer Olympics like, a few years ago, right? Uh so, but you got to get city council's permission to do that, uh, to do the exploratory work on this and, and run some numbers by, and then you have to open a bid. And we did this a few years ago. The twice before Hamilton has bid on, on Commonwealth Games was unsuccessful. Uh, is the third time a charm? Well, the city committee that dealt with this yesterday didn't think so because they gave it a thumbs down and said they don't even want to pursue this anymore. Now, that's not the final word. And we'll explain why in a couple of minutes. But I want to get some input from you on this as to whether or not council got it right or whether we should consider looking into bidding for the 2030 Commonwealth Games here in Hamilton. But before we do that, I want to talk to some of the folks that were around that council table yesterday that uh, heard from some of the staff and then, of course, had to, to vote on this. One of them is uh, Ward 7 Councillor Donna Skelly, who joins us on the Bill Kelly Show. Hi, Donna. How are you doing this morning? I'm good. How are you? Good. Listen, you and I have talked uh, at length, of course, about some of the concerns about the Pan Am uh, impact and what went on here. Uh, a lot of that happened, obviously, b- you know, before you were even on council. But the, the, the aftershock, I guess, of that is still with us these days. It Was that in the back of your mind or even maybe even in the front of your mind as you went into these discussions yesterday? Absolutely, that and the uh, fiasco over so many games that we see. Sochi, um, you know, we're seeing uh, what's happening in Victoria right now with the current uh, bid on the Commonwealth Games. I, 
another thing is this was more or less sprung on us. I mean, this is just a staff recommendation. It wasn't prompted by council. It was uh, brought forward by staff, which is their job. Don't get me wrong. But we haven't had an opportunity to really delve into whether or not this is something we should be doing. And we haven't had an opportunity to gauge public support. Uh, Staff simply asked us, would you give us the authority to explore further whether we should submit a bid? I'm not crazy about going down this path, but I don't think we should ignore the fact that this is just a request to explore whether we should do it. Uh, I want to see the facts in front of us before I make a decision, although I'm already leaning towards saying no. But I think if, and the staff has promised us they're not asking for additional funds, they're doing it within their budget, so let's see what happens when they come back. My issue, however, is it has to be thorough and it has to be unbiased. It's very easy to come forward if you have an agenda to make it happen. If our intent is to win the Commonwealth Games, if our intent is to go after the Games, then the staff report may be slanted. But if it's truly objective, really objective, in other words, let's study the fiasco with the Pan Am Games, let's look at what's happening elsewhere with Commonwealth bids, let's look at what's happening with the um, the Massa after many, many, many um, Olympic Games, then I think that then it's it's a much better report that we can make uh, make a decision based on. Who did you hear from yesterday uh, from staff? It was just from Greg uh, Maychuk, and and okay. that was it. And it there was no presentation. It was it wasn't a presentation. It was just give us the authority to to look at it. So there was no presentation. He was simply on hand to answer questions. So he did assure us there wouldn't be any cost involved in exploring it. My um, hope is that, again, any report that's brought back to council has all the warts in it as well. That's important to me, and it's imperative. Uh, I will probably not support it. I know I'm, 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 I'm asking for the report, and I'm already saying I'm, I'm biased, and I am, because I have yet to see anything in front of me as a former journalist. I've looked into this so often. I mean, we've had so many um, stories where Toronto has wanted to go after the Olympic bid, for example, and then the whole fiasco, in my opinion, surrounding the Pan Am Games. I'm not sold that these types of events actually uh, fulfill the mandate that they promise, the promises that they make when they go into it and they put all this money into it. They don't deliver on them, and the revenue that is is allegedly generated after these games, is it nothing more than taxpayer-funded revenue? Then why are we doing it? Well, there's that element, and, and you're absolutely right. I mean, it's, I guess the the truth is is really after the games are finished in whatever city you finally is, is presenting these things and say, okay, what are you left with here? Uh, and we saw what happened, of course, in Montreal with uh, with the Olympics and uh, and the stadium issues, et cetera, et cetera. But I'm, I'm interested in the fact that the Greg Maycheck uh, is the city staff. Actually, uh, Greg told me about this a couple of weeks ago that that there was some inkling about this, and he said we, we're going to have to go to council. I actually bumped into him in a coffee shop, I think it was, and we had about a two second conversation about it. But Greg was was one of the guys that went over to Manchester when Hamilton really wanted to put the bid in some years ago. He went to where the uh, the games were going on. Now the impression I got, Donna, is that Manchester actually had a pretty good games, pretty successful games. And when all was said and done, they they turned all the housing into affordable housing. The stadium is still being well used, as are the other facilities. So it was a win for them. But that doesn't happen very often. It doesn't. And I think we need to look at the Olympics 
in uh, Vancouver, and they're still struggling with some of the issues around housing, and, and it didn't generate the tourist attractions after the fact. How do you quantify branding? I mean, you can't put a dollar figure on it. The other thing is, can we afford this? And is Hamilton the type of city, the size of city? We're not, man. I don't think we're even close to the size of Manchester. Are we the size of city that can host something this this big? And do people really care about the Commonwealth Games? I mean, the Pan Am Games, you had American athletes. The Commonwealth Games, you don't get that caliber of athlete, and it's third tier from the Olympics. And so you're not going to get the television revenue. You're not going to get the, the same interest. Um, there are events that we, we, that we can and, and, and should pursue. One was the International um, uh, Cycling Championships that we hosted years ago, the yep. World Cycling Championships. And I was one of the people that said, don't do it. And I had to eat a lot of crow after the fact because it was successful. I think they were beautiful. I think they, were, they, they really um, showcased Hamilton in an incredible um, uh, light on international As, on as did the Canadian Open when we headed to Hamilton Golf sure. and Country Club. We've done that a few times now, so, too. We didn't have to go out and build a lot of uh, buildings and, and uh, arenas and, and um, uh, locations for different events. I mean, the, the cycling championships, they took over our roads and people were displaced. But in the, in the end, I think it was a very successful event. But the Commonwealth Games are different. I just am not sold on, on any major event like this actually turning a profit and actually fulfilling uh, the promises that they make at the beginning, at the inception. If it's about $100 million, which is what was thrown out, a figure thrown out yesterday, to host our part, city's part, to host these games, I just don't think we have it. And I don't think that we have the appetite to start um, focusing staff on this type of, a, of an initiative while we're trying to handle the, the LRT and, and other things that are going on in the city. I just don't think that this is the, the right thing for the city to do, but I'm open to waiting for staff to come back with an unbiased, objective, fulsome report. Donna, great questions and some interesting perspectives, and I think things that needed to be answered. Uh, we look forward to the conversation, I guess, next week when it goes back to the full council. Thanks so much for this. We'll stay in touch. No problem. Donna Skelly, of course, from Ward 7. Terry Whitehead, uh, next-door neighbor, Ward 8 uh, councillor, uh, at the meeting is yes, uh, yesterday as well, and uh, he joins us on the Bill Kelly Show with his perspective. Hi, Terry. How are you? Good. Good. Thanks for having me, Bill. Let's, let's talk a little bit about this, Terry. You've been around long enough uh, uh, in, in the administrative and, of course, on the elected side of on City Council to have been there for the Commonwealth bids in the past. You know what's involved in this. Uh, talk to us about your impressions and, and, and what you heard yesterday. Uh, well, first of all, uh, yesterday was just uh, basically putting our uh, toe in the water and testing the water and, and indicating an interest. It's not uh, a binding uh, arrangement whatsoever. And as a counselor, I think we have a fiduciary responsibility uh, to make informed decisions based on all information. And when what, uh, when we're at just the, the 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 beginning of a process to obtain information, so we can make an informed decision, I think it's prudent for us to allow that process to unfold, as opposed to shutting it down completely and forego any opportunity in the future. Well, council's done that in the past, uh, and and I think they've lived to regret it in certain situations. Uh, and and I my understanding is as, as you mentioned and as Donna just reiterated a couple of minutes ago that, uh, that you don't have any skin in the game right now. You're simply saying, well, if we were to do this, what would we have to do? I mean, how extensive a report would you be looking for? Well, first of all, uh, a couple of things. One is uh, when 
uh, some counselors put out, we need to focus on needs and not wants. I don't disagree with that. But uh, my experience, and I worked on the Commonwealth file, uh, I worked for uh, uh, Heritage Canada, Sheila, and I was in uh, Manchester and got to see the transformation that took place as a result of the Commonwealth Games and how uh, the dollars that are coming from other levels of government is going to be spent anyway. Let's be clear. There'll be other cities more likely putting interest in uh, hosting the Commonwealth Games, and the federal government and the provincial government will back uh, whatever city they feel uh, appropriate at the time, based on merit. So, uh, uh, so if taxpayers' dollars are being spent, I'd rather have it spent in Hamilton than another community. Secondly, how you frame uh, 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 the, the needs in regards to Commonwealth Games is important. And when we talk about uh, our transportation needs, affordable housing needs, some of these things are benefits that come out of these such these games because those investments are made. Uh, into housing and residence and so forth, and, uh, and amenities to accommodate the uh, the Commonwealth Games. For example, in Vancouver, the whole uh, uh, train, the uh, the Sky Train, from the airport into downtown, that was through the Olympic funding. So there's lots of dollars you can tap into to further advance your infrastructure in your community and meet your infrastructure needs at the same time. So I think. For my purpose, I'd like to get to the point where we can frame what we like to get out of the Commonwealth Games to advance this community from an infrastructure deficit point of view. If we can't do that, then we can always say no. A couple of things, and because and, I was on council back when the, that first bid, the Commonwealth bid, and, and i got to tell you, in hindsight, it was a pretty exciting time because the collaboration that went on there between the federal government uh, and you were working, as I say, in Sheila Cop's office at the time, so you got to see that firsthand. The province was jumping on side, uh, McMaster University and the city. Uh, that was one of the early partnerships between the university and Hamilton in such a big way. Uh, and there was going to be some collaboration about building facilities, shared facilities. And, and we tend to forget, Terry, that we made it down to the final two or three. I mean, the final bid... Uh, they they liked this bid. I mean, they came here, they saw the city, they saw what was going on, and it almost happened. And uh, I, I don't know what could have happened as a result if we had actually ended up winning that bid. But well, it's I, it's I a different I, animal well, from the Pan Am Games, though, isn't it? I was in Johannesburg with the Commonwealth Committee, and they were looking at ways to uh, uh, see if they could actually consider Hamilton in a future year at that time because they really liked the Hamilton connection, the Empire Loyalist Games beginning in the Commonwealth, there was a real, uh, you could see and feel uh, the vibe that uh, uh, that Hamilton was certainly in play. So, uh, um, you know, I, I'm not overly concerned that we uh, don't have a chance of uh, hosting in 20, that's the anniversary of the Commonwealth Games. Of course, again, the beginning was right here in Hamilton with the Empire Loyalist Games. So uh, it was exciting, and it draws a lot of attention. I mean, you can't buy the, 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 the advertising that. But what people really want to know is, are they going to get value at the tax dollar? And I firmly believe that we get to frame the, the proposal. And when we frame the proposal, we should ensure that we, that we frame it in such a way that we advance the city on many fronts. If we can't do that, then we shouldn't be in the game. What's going to happen next week? Uh, it was a very, very close vote yesterday not to pursue this, but, I mean, you had three councillors who were absent who I assume are going to be back for next week, including the mayor, by the way, who's out of the country right now. Uh, and, and you and Donna both made, I, I think, a very legitimate point here. Uh, turning something down in the absence of any information about it I, I think is rather short-sighted on council's part. I don't care if you're talking about Commonwealth Games or LRT or, or, or where to put a splash pad. 
Uh, it, it, it's always better, I think, when council makes an, an informed decision as opposed to a knee-jerk uh, decision on this. Uh, is there a chance this thing may go forward? I still think there is, absolutely. I, I, you know, I'm hoping to talk to and uh, continue talking. I have talked to a couple of councillors uh, since that vote, uh, and, and I said, look, um, our, our job is actually to stay open-minded and bring all the information in. We're not binding ourselves to nothing. Uh, and, and let's get the information and make an informed decision. To shut it off before the information isn't, isn't good business, period. And it's certainly not, uh, uh, in my, my, uh, from my point of view, is uh, representing the values uh, that council should espouse in respect to optimizing every opportunity for the city of Hamilton. Terry Whitehead, Councillor for Ward 8. Terry, thanks so much for this. We'll stay in touch as this uh, rolls by the whole council next week. Thanks for this today. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.